Welcome, welcome. It's so good to see you all here today. I want to do something, you guys. I, uh, I send videos to my, my uh, church family back in Africa, and so I'm going to ask you all you guys to say hello to all my brothers and sisters in Africa. So if y'all don't mind, I'm going to take a short video of you, because you're really strange to us over there. You know, we've never seen people like you and worship like this, so this is really weird. So anyway, as I pan the room, I want you guys to say uh uh, you can say greetings from America or hello, brothers and sisters in Africa. It really doesn't matter. But if you would, I'm going to just pan the room with this phone and y'all can send your greetings and love to my brothers and sisters in Africa. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, here we go. One, two, three, go. How cool was that? Everybody in America saying greetings to you guys. God bless you. See you soon. Bye. I go back next week, so give them a little something there. I sent them some songs, by the way. They love the way we worship, of course. Have you, any of you my friends on Facebook? Well, if you are, you'll see that I post the way we worship, and it's a little bit different. If you want to uh, friend me, uh, I just posted one from worship. Well, it was today, but it was, you know, today 12 hours ago because we're a little bit ahead of you in time. But you can see how we worship in Africa uh, I post about every other week just showing a little bit of our song time, and uh, a lot of people love it. They say it makes their week to see the way we do things in Africa. To say we're exuberant would be um, an understatement. I think you'll enjoy it. I don't know about you, but I'm moved when I hear people worship God in another language. You know, it's, it's so easy to think about ourselves in our own little group. And one of the things that was overwhelming for me the first time I stood in Africa is I, I realized as I was there and they were all worshiping and all dancing before the Lord and, and all these things were going on and occasionally they'd sing a hymn, but it would be in another language, of course. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I gained a new perspective. I realized that as the earth turned and God was in heaven, on Sunday mornings, that literally people praised and worshiped him as the sun came up and the planet turned from language to language to language to language. And they praised him in every tongue and language that there was. And I thought, man, what does God get to hear? I mean, the Chinese would start off first, you know, as the sun rose in the east, and it would eventually make it to the Middle East. And then I realized he would hear Swahili in the morning, and then he would hear Maasai an hour or so later. And eventually people would begin to sing in English, and then he would there'd be a little quiet as only Iceland was out in the ocean there for that little pause, a little crescendo, and then America would kick back up and all these people singing in English again, and the globe would circle itself, and I realized, wow, it's like a wave that just goes around the world in all these languages every Sunday. And so I just, you know, I started just thinking about the world different from God's perspective. So anyway, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I know some of you are new. Some of you weren't here last night. It's the first time to get to hear me. I'll uh, tell you a little bit about myself. I'm actually going to share my testimony about how I became a missionary and how I became a disciple of Jesus Christ. I have been in Tanzania for over 10 years now. Uh, I'm a missionary there. Uh, I'm going to share you some pictures today a little bit later on. But what I wanted to do today was tell you guys a little bit about how a guy goes from being a normal, let's pursue the American dream kind of guy 
to somebody that becomes a missionary in Tanzania. The reason I like to share that is, is that there's usually two or three things everybody wants to know. And I know I did when I went and heard missionaries on those rare occasions that they came to our church. The first one was, is what were you thinking? You know, why in the world would you go over there and do that? I mean, it just, you know, uh, you know, when I was a young man, there wasn't even internet. I mean, I don't even know if you could call home on a regular basis. And, and so the isolation itself just seemed mind-boggling to me to be so far away from my family and things like that. And so, you know, I always wondered, I always wanted to stand up after the guy got through and say, excuse me, what in the world are you, why would you go? I mean, I could never really connect the dots for why anybody would go over there. Because when I was a young man and a young new Christian, there were so few missionaries and it was so hard to communicate with them. It was a real rarity to run into somebody. And, you know, nowadays we can all get on a plane and then, you know, we can go down to Haiti in a few hours. We can go to different countries that are close. And so it's much more attainable. We have the Internet so we can actually watch things going on around the world. It's not quite the mystery it was. But I think it's still important to understand why somebody would do what it is that I've chosen to do. Because I believe the same reasons that I decided to be a missionary are the same reasons that you need to decide to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I spent yesterday speaking about being a disciple. My brother recapped it for a little bit. But everywhere I go, and I get invited, believe it or not, to Mennonite church over half to three quarters of the time, I get invited by Mennonites to come because what they're wanting to do is they see a commonality between myself and them. First of all, I believe in the literal adherence and application of the Sermon on the Mount, much like our Mennonite brothers and sisters do. However, I bring something to it that they're having trouble getting their hands on, and that's how do we go out into all the world and make disciples? How do we lead people to Jesus Christ? And how do we turn ourselves from being inward to outward? So I get invited. I've been everywhere from L.A. Yes, there are Mennonite churches in L.A. It's one of my favorite places to go. Uh, I go everywhere from L.A. I've been to Rhode Island this year, Pennsylvania, of course, uh, the Midwest and all this kind of thing. And even in Tennessee and Kentucky, uh, I go around and I speak to different groups. And that's what I do is I talk about how to make disciples, be a disciple, I talk about missions, of course, since that's what I do. And then also the other thing I talk about is how do we articulate about the kingdom of God? You know, Jesus said to seek it first. He said it was more valuable than a treasure in a field. It was more valuable than a pearl of great price. It was worth selling everything you had to get it. And on judgment day, it'll be decided whether we will enter into the consummated kingdom and rule and reign with him forever and ever. So Jesus said it was the most important thing, but the vast majority of us have no idea how to articulate what the kingdom of God is. How can that be so when he told us to seek it first? How can that be so when he said it's the most important thing? How can that be so when he says it's worth selling everything that you have that we can't even talk about it in a coherent message? As a matter of fact, the good news of the kingdom of God is the only thing that Jesus ever said was the good news in his ministry. Paul talked to his dying day in his apartment in uh, Rome having people come and visit him, and he was persuading them about the kingdom of God in Jesus. The book of Acts starts and ends talking about the kingdom of God. That's how they led people to Jesus was by talking about the kingdom of God in Jesus, and we've lost that. We've gone out and copied the evangelicals, and we've copied the evangelistic 
crowd and we've kind of adopted and co-opted this gospel that only centers on the atonement. The atonement's awesome. Praise God for what Jesus did on the cross. That's a big part of God. That's all of God's being reconciled, uh, reaching out to reconcile us back to him. However, Jesus and Paul and the apostles preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Tonight, I'm going to talk about how to articulate the kingdom of God in our gospel message, and I hope you'll come, because you're not going to be able to do and make disciples like I'm going to talk about, or I talked about last night, and I'm going to share with you about, unless you understand how to communicate the kingdom of God in an effective manner, okay? And so that should be the major thing in our life is understanding and communicating to others the good news. And remember, the only thing Jesus called the good news was the good news of the kingdom. So we've got to learn how to articulate that message because Jesus said it was the most important thing. Okay? So that's what we're going to do tonight. Okay, I'm going to actually walk you through that and I'm going to share with you how we share the gospel in Africa and how I'm going to suggest to you how you might alter that a little bit and make it easier for you to share here. Last night I talked about discipleship. I said you can't make disciples unless you are a disciple. And then the punchline to that is unless you're making disciples, you're not a disciple. You see, disciples obey what Jesus called them to do. The whole method of making disciples was Jesus sent people out and commanded them to make disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them what? To obey all I've commanded you. It's circular reasoning. If you're not making disciples, you're not obeying all God commanded you. So you're not a disciple. So if you call yourself a disciple, I want you to recategorize yourself. I don't want you to, 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 I don't want to discourage you. I want you to say, you know, I thought I was a disciple. That crazy guy came and he said, I'm not a disciple unless I'm a disciple maker. Well, by golly, I'm going to start making disciples. I'm not here to discourage you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to motivate you to begin to do the things God's called you to do. You want to identify as a disciple in order to do so by Jesus' own standard of what a disciple is. You have to become a disciple maker. You're not a housewife. You're not a welder. You're not a widow. You're not a... A uh, retired person, you're not a pastor, and you're well, maybe you're a pastor, and you're not a uh, um, whatever it is your profession. You are a disciple and a disciple maker, and your profession, as we call it in America, is just the way you fund your ministry. We got to stop identifying the same way the world does. You know, I identified as an entrepreneur. That's not how God saw it. That's not what God wants me to be. God never called me to be an entrepreneur. He called me to be a disciple and a disciple maker. What I became was an entrepreneur with a Jesus bumper sticker on the back of my car. That's not God's plan for me. God's plan for you isn't to be a nice person that shows up on Sunday morning for an hour or two. God's got a bigger plan for you. And that's what I talked about last night. Today, I want to talk about my process, which is really how I became a disciple. I got saved when I was 16 years old. I'm going to take this jacket off. I got saved when I was 16 years old. And uh, my family had, uh, we'd been raised Methodist, which meant in our particular circumstance, we got raised without really any biblical knowledge whatsoever. The Methodist churches we went to were not the Wesleyan type that some of the better congregations are now, but rather just go to church on Sunday and, 
you know, the preacher talked about nice things and told cool jokes and very moral stories, and that was kind of the end of it. So we didn't have anything, but God, uh, uh, Tim and I were talking the other day, God had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Asbury uh, College. It spread all through the Methodist Church. My parents were part of that group that got born again on fire for Jesus. Later, I came to the Lord at 16 years old. I was excited about the Lord. There was a couple of things I had questions about, though, that no one could answer for me. The first one was, is Jesus said some crazy stuff. And everybody's like, what do you mean? And I said, what's this uh, forgiving everybody and turning the other cheek thing? They said, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Jesus doesn't really want you to do that. He just wants you to be willing to do that. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, I'm a new guy, so I just believe what everybody tells me. He said, well, what about this love of my enemies? Well, Jesus doesn't expect you to do that. He just wants you to be willing to do that. Or Jesus knows you can't do that. It's like a... It's like a thing to where you're supposed to try because you don't know any better, and then you fail and you realize God hates your works anyway. And so you just just have faith. That's all it is. So no matter what I came up with as far as questions, everybody had a reason why Jesus never meant what he said, and I could never do anything he told me to do, and I found that baffling as a new Christian. The other thing was is why does this guy Jesus go around keeps talking about the kingdom of God? And every time I would ask somebody what the kingdom of God was, it was like if you ask 100 people, you got 100 answers. What's the kingdom of God? Oh, it's when you die to go to heaven. Really? It says here that when I cast the demons out the finger, by the finger of God, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. I don't know. I don't know about that verse. You just, when you die and go to heaven, you know, that's, that's the kingdom of God. I'm okay, okay. I'm a new Christian. I don't know no better, you know. I go to someone else. I say, what's the kingdom of God? And he said, oh, that was for Israel. It ain't got nothing to do with you. Don't worry about it. Just forget about it. That's, that was for Israel. Jesus tried to, try, God tried that. It didn't work. He had to move on to plan B. So, you know, everybody had a different reason. So I was, I was always frustrated in my Christian wall. But one thing I was really good at was just telling everybody about Jesus. I was very outspoken about my faith. Uh, Jesus had so radically changed my life as a Christian. My family was in ruins. I was, uh, my mom and dad had gotten saved. I was just Hades on earth in my family. I ran away from home. I caused nothing but trouble. Uh, I mean, I was troubled with a capital T everywhere I went. And finally, when I got saved, God just healed my family. It was such a miraculous thing. He transformed me. I was truly born again in a new creature. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I just had to tell everybody everywhere I went. However, as my life went on, even though I was viewed as a, as a, as a really good Christian guy and everything, as I went uh, longer and longer in my life, like mo- many of us do, I got very involved in uh, uh, pursuing mammon. Uh, you know, all of a sudden you get married and you have a few kids and taking care of your family becomes a big priority. And the next thing was it became more important that, I, uh, that uh, the type of job I had and the career I had, and then it became important the kind of car I drove and house I lived in and the neighborhood I was in. And I began to add all these things that became important to me. And in the end, I'd become very much a very worldly Christian, even though I was the worship leader. I was highly involved in the pro-life movement. I was a foster care home for women that wanted to carry their babies to term, whose family and, and people in their lives were uh, trying to force them to have an abortion. As a matter of fact, the uh, fo- two of the first four girls that ever came and stayed at our house were pastor's daughters. 
in upper middle class families where the pastor, it was a shame for their daughter to have been pregnant and they wanted their daughters to have an abortion. And, uh, and actually these people would run to the Catholic church in Atlanta and Atlanta would call up, call up in Nashville, Tennessee, where I was living at the time and says, we got a couple of these Protestant girls that their daddy's trying to get them an abortion. Would you, can you help us out? And I'm like, send up. And so we'd move them in, let them carry their baby to term. We'd help them uh, have somebody set up to adopt that child, or then they could keep the child. Every situation was different. Uh, we had heroin addicts sent to us that God miraculously allowed the children to be born perfectly normal, just all kinds of situations. But anyway, I was very involved in that. So you would have looked at my life and said, that's a great Christian guy. However, what it slowly began to happen in my life is I began to pursue and pursue more monetary things, and my heart began to grow cold towards the Lord, even though outwardly I was doing a bunch of really good things. Eventually, uh, we became, me and a bunch of guys became very successful in real estate partnerships, and then all of a sudden, uh, I won't go into it, but there was a, a specific regional thing that happened in our area where they ended a certain type of financing, and we got kind of caught with our proverbial drawers down, and we couldn't continue on, and we had leveraged everything we had, and, uh, and we were forced to the point to where we were on the, the brink of bankruptcy. One day, you were, I was 29 years old, and I thought I was going to be a millionaire before I was 30, which was mine and my friend's uh, goal. That was kind of a big deal in the 70s. That was a lot of money back then, and so I thought I was, had arrived, and I literally went to bed Friday night thinking that, woke up on Monday, and my whole world had came to an end. I mean, everything that I had tried to do, we were trying to do a big condo conversion in Nashville. We'd take a bunch of uh, apartments and turn them into condos, and it was going to be our ticket. And so anyway, I lost everything. I never said the words, I blamed God, but I absolutely did. I never said those words, but how could God let this happen to me? I led worship. I was actively involved in the pro-life movement. I... I I was a leader and a, and a deacon and elder in the church eventually, so how could this happen to me? And so over a period of time, I became more and more depressed, more disgruntled. I finally resigned as a worship leader. They actually sent leaders from our denomination to visit with me, and the last word I heard from one of the leaders was, is that, Glenn, you've lost hope, and I don't know how to give it back to you. And that's absolutely what had happened. I had just lost any hope that God would or could redeem my situation. You know, the Catholics believe that if you commit suicide, it's the sin, it's, it's an unforgivable sin because you've sinned against hope. In other words, you said even God can't fix it. So it's the ultimate denial of God in his power. And that's exactly where I was at. I didn't kill myself, but I certainly wanted to. But that's how low I had gone. And I spent the next 10 years of my life, my father's still alive, he'll tell you today, they were the worst 10 years of his life was when I turned my back on God and I went into the world at hyperspeed on steroids. I mean, I went as hard after the world as I could possibly do. I became a drug addict. I got involved in everything that was evil and bad that you could possibly get involved in. And by God's grace and goodness, uh, when I hit absolute rock bottom, uh, I got on my knees on a bed. I had not prayed in 10 years. I got on my knees like a little child and, and took my hands just like you see in those little pictures, those little quaint 
ridiculous pictures of little babies crying, uh, praying next to their bed. You know, the now I lay me down to sleep little things. We all have crochet. Just like that, I got down there and I knelt down and I didn't even know what to say. I didn't even know what to do. And all I said was the same words over and over again. Mercy, mercy, mercy. I don't know if you've ever heard the song. I hadn't. But I was riding down the road two weeks later, three weeks later. I was trying to uh, listen to some Christian music instead of all that stuff I'd been listening to. And I was backsliding. I turned it on. And, and if my memory's correct, there was a group of guys, Phillips, Craig, and Dean were the name of them. And, uh, and they had this song. And I'm riding down the road. And in this song, this guy talked about coming back towards God and he was coming with the burden of sin and his heart and his life was broken. And as he come back, he was saying that behind the veil, that mercy was there. And it said that mercy was pressing its hand against the veil. And this guy was coming and he finally broke down and he finally called out to God. And the song says that the veil was ripped and mercy came running like a prisoner set free. And I realized as I was driving down the road that God had been wanting to forgive me. God had been wanting to restore me. God wanted to return me. And his mercy had been held because I wouldn't ask for it. All he wanted me to do was say, I can't do it unless you come, God. If you don't come, I can't make it. And when I finally said it, mercy came busting through. It broke through like a prisoner set free. And I stood up from that place no longer addicted to cocaine, no longer addicted to drugs. And, and walked away a healed and restored man. And that's what God did for me. I came back to Memphis and of course my family was so excited. Everybody in my life was excited because I had destroyed and burned down every relationship that I had. And when I came back to it and everything and began to try and stumble and bumble and, and follow the Lord, it was so funny. It was a, almost as soon as I got going good, I had another financial catastrophe. How many of you remember 911? We all remember. Well, you know, I had started an alarm business. You know, I'd always been kind of an entrepreneur guy, and I had a very successful alarm business. And when the terrorist thing attacked, we went from the crystal meth epidemic in, in, uh, in the southern United States driving everybody to have to go get an alarm. We couldn't put them in fast enough to where all of a sudden everybody decided that now there was a terrorist hiding behind every, uh, you know, water tank and, and every road sign and everywhere you went. Nobody cared about alarm systems anymore. Everybody was afraid of terrorists. I mean, I remember installing an alarm system in a guy's house, and I look over to the left, and I literally saw the second plane hit the tower, and I went, what is going on as I was standing there? And everything changed. So we went from being highly profitable to zero, like overnight. Our, our telemarketers that were calling people to make appointments, they were like, Glenn, we're working as hard as we can. Nobody is interested in alarms right now. They're all fixated on terrorism. And we literally had to switch over and started doing uh, uh, surveillance cameras and changed our whole business model and never were as successful. So I moved back to Memphis, Tennessee, and then I began, once again, started my career over again, and I began to prosper again. Once I did, I was going to church and I was doing all the things that I, uh, that I believe God wanted me to do. I wasn't, though, like I was when I was a 16-year-old Christian. 
I wasn't as on fire. I wasn't as excited. And I wasn't, had really forgotten how to share my faith. You know, so much of sharing my faith as a young Christian was out of this. I had just been transformed and born again. And boy, how many of you know, after you've fallen and fell and stumbled and broke your nose and bruised your ribs and skinned your knee and you come back, you're, you're glad to be back, but you're not quite as agile as you were before, you know, because you've been through there. You know, Jacob limped after he wrestled with God. Let me tell you something. I had wrestled with God. I was limping. There's no doubt about it. And so, uh, and I came back, and I, uh, but I was being very successful again in my career. As a matter of fact, I had become an entrepreneur, and I, I had slowly uh, accumulated other businesses, and I was working with other people as well. I published three of my own magazines. had no idea I would be good at that. I, I had taken journalism and was really terrible in English, but I got involved in it and was just totally motivated with writing, and I just loved it. And so I, I started one magazine, then another, and then another, and I just loved it. I love working with creative people. I, I love the whole experience. And then I got involved in telecom IT. I did that for a number of years. I, I started a restaurant for my daughter. Uh, we were the only 100% green coffee house slash restaurant in the entire United States, 100%. Um, even our, even our, our plastic silverware was made of potatoes. Literally was made of potatoes. You could throw it out in the yard and let it rain on it two weeks, and the, and literally the forks and knives went away. Man, is that expensive, by the way, especially back then when it first came out. And so anyway, uh, we did that. I also had a uh, executive placement service, and uh, also owned uh, was a partner in the oldest <laughs> the oldest cigar store. Uh, uh, in, in America at the time. It's closed since I had it. So anyway, I had my finger in everything that you could have it in, and I was very, very successful. But I got a letter and got invited to be involved in a church plant downtown, and I was driving far, far away because I lived downtown where all my businesses were. We, we uh, published a tourist magazine, so being around downtown where, you know, Elvis's house is in Memphis and the Bill Street and all the tourist stuff there, that was very important important for us as far as marketing. So I actually lived downtown. Well, all the churches in downtown cities usually are kind of like museums. You know, they got the big cathedral and they usually put the most liberal pastor in the world there and they don't, not really Bible believing folks. So I was having to drive 45 minutes or an hour to go find a Bible believing church, you know, to be a part of. So anyway, I got involved in this church plant. And once I got involved in it, it was the weirdest church plant that I'd ever been to because the pastor who started it had been a missionary to Japan. He was turning it over to another pastor that was taken over. They'd been a, uh, a missionary to Russia and Brazil. And everybody in the congregation had been on short-term mission trips. And I showed up at this place, and I said, boy, these people are different. Every one of them goes all over the world telling people about Jesus. And I was kind of interested in that, but, you know, it wasn't like the theme in church or anything. We were just trying to get a church planted. I found out that no one had officially joined the church yet, so I joined and I became the first member of Island Community Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And it is my sending church now that sends me over to Africa, and, uh, and that's who lays hands on me and sends me every year, which is what I'll do next Sunday when I speak, as I always do the last Sunday before I go back to Africa on Monday of next week. But that's how I got sent, and, and it was at this place to where things began to change for me. I was working about 100 hours a week running all these businesses. I was very successful. I was very happy. 
Uh, and we began to have a Bible study in my house, and, and I invited all my neighbors. And like I said, we were a church plant. We didn't really have any members other than me and a few people. And uh, uh, we began to lead people to Christ, and I would watch my pastor lead people to Jesus. And he would sit down and explain everything to them. And the first people that ever got saved in our church were, you know, in this Bible study that I had at my house and everything. And so, and I went up to him one time, and I said, you know, I remember when I used to be able to lead people to Jesus. And I said, I'm embarrassed to tell you I don't even know how anymore. And he says, well, let me show you. Well, he thought I wanted him to mechanically show me, you know. So he had his own little version of uh, the little thing he drew out, and he had his little Bible scriptures. And that was good. I mean, I need to hear that again because I've forgotten all that stuff. The problem was is that this guy could just walk around and tell people about Jesus in the most relaxed and comfortable way, and I didn't know how to do it. I remember going to the grocery store with him one time, and, and I'm running over to get the chips and dip. He goes back to the vegetable department, and I'm up at the register going, where's Jeff at because I always caught him Jeff and uh and he comes walking up and he says man he says going back and y'all start cooking out without me he said I've got to stay here the guy back there in the produce department wants me to tell him about Jesus on break and I said excuse me he said the guy back there in the produce department wants me to tell him about Jesus on break I said that guy I knew that guy because I shopped in that store. All he did was stand out back and smoke cigarettes, curse like a sailor, and leered at all the women and got complaints to management because the way he was looking at them. I mean, this was not the kind of guy that asked you to come tell him about Jesus on coffee break, right? I'm just like, what's going on here? But I began to learn that Jeff had this way that he could go around telling people about Jesus everywhere went. We couldn't go get gas together, and this guy's over telling somebody about Jesus, and somehow when he talked to them, they asked him to tell them about Jesus. And I'm like, there's something, I don't even understand how this happened. So I kept asking him, help me, help me, help me. So he came up with an odd solution. You know, he didn't know how to pass on this winsome ability to tell people about Jesus. So what he did was he hooked me up with this ministry in town that was giving away free groceries. A lot of people don't know this, but the two poor zip codes in Memphis, Tennessee, I mean, there's two poor zip codes in America that are not on the Indian reservation or Memphis, Tennessee. In fact, uh, once again this last week, those two zip codes rocketed Memphis, Tennessee to be the murder capital of America again. We, we, we're in a fight with like Chicago and East St. Louis all the time. You know, who's going to be the most dangerous place to live in America? And we're on top again. We're number one. We're number one. But it's all because of these two zip codes. And so anyway, I go over there and we're passing out groceries in these two zip codes and what we would do is while we were helping these people is that uh if they wanted to we would a bunch of people be sitting over here at the table we'd pray for you or we'd visit with you it would take us about an hour to get everybody their groceries but if you give us the time you know we'd come over and visit with you and tell you about jesus and pray with you and all this stuff and surprisingly about 80 percent of the people rather than sitting there staring at a wall for an hour they'd say yeah i'll talk to one of those guys and so we would go over there and these guys went and they took me along and I'm just kind of sitting there like a fly on the wall and watching these people say they want to talk about Jesus. And then these guys would talk to them about the Lord and I watched them lead people to Jesus over and over again. So I decided I was going to do this. So all of a sudden every Saturday I would go over there and I began to pray with people. And I know this sounds crazy, but within about an 18 month period, I prayed with over 200 people 
to come to Christ. This is what I did. Before then, my idea of fun on Saturday morning, I mean, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. We're in SEC country, man. I'm telling you, everybody that I know that's not a kingdom Christian right now has, has got a, a mental hangover from the Alabama-Georgia game. You know, that's all they're talking about today. That's all that's going on. There's guys that'll miss church today because of that game yesterday because football is the thing that matters, and I was one of those guys. My Saturday mornings were going to a tailgating and uh, where a bunch of guys got around and you know and talked about football and we had the tents and we had the the coolers and we cooked out and drank beer even Christians we drank beer and smoked cigars since I had a cigar shop you know I had to bring everybody cigars and that's what my Saturday was and we started eight or nine in the morning and I don't care if the game wasn't eight or nine at night we were all there and that was my idea of fun and that's how I wanted to spend my Saturdays until I started leading people to Jesus and then it got to where it was a funny, life-changing experience. I, came, I got through, and I would, I would come to the tailgate and party. After I'd been there till about 11 o'clock leading people to Jesus, we'd start about 8 in the morning. It was over about 11, so people could go home and eat. And I'd show up to tailgate, and they'd go, oh, Glenn's here, life of the party. Where are the cigars? I didn't bring you today. Here, man, here's a beer. And I said, I don't think I need a beer today. Okay, well, uh, what have you been doing, Glenn? I said, man, you're not going to believe it. But I just prayed with this guy today. And you know, he his life is broken. He just got out of prison and he and he and he and he doesn't know what he's gonna do. And I, I talked to him about Jesus and we got down on our knees by a chair and he asked Jesus to take over his life. And I said, and and I led this guy to Jesus. And I said, That's that's what I've been doing today. And they're like, okay. All right, how about them Tigers? And we, you know, we, everybody go talking about football. Well, the next week I showed up and they go, hey, Glenn's here. Hey, man, here's a beer. And I said, uh, I don't think I want a beer today. Well, what have you been doing, Glenn? And they were used to be talking about my business and, you know, my complaints about my employees or a big deal we signed. And I said, well, you're not going to believe it. But I went, went to that same ministry again today. It's called Impact Ministry. And, and we'd had a big flood come through town. And, and, and these Hispanic families had been put up in a trailer. And their trailer got wiped out. And they saved all their lives. So they came here to get food in the ministry. And they were all Catholics. They'd never even read a Bible or seen a Bible. And I got to tell them about Jesus. They didn't even know about being born again. They never never heard about salvation outside the church and that Jesus wanted them to repent and come and follow him. And all 12 people from an 80-year-old man all the way down to the 16-year-old daughter, they all received Jesus and wanted to come and follow him. And I said, that's what I did this morning. Man, by the third week, I showed up at tailgating and nobody was there. I thought, this is strange. I said, you know, I didn't get my phone call. Well, you normally get a phone call saying, Glenn, you got to bring the potato salad. It's your turn. Glenn, bring the potato chips and dip. It's your turn. Glenn, you're supposed to bring the beer this week. It's your turn. I realized I didn't get my phone call this week. And I'm standing here in our favorite tailgating spot, and it's empty. So I pick up the phone, I call my friends, and they would, nobody answered for about 20, 35 tries. And then finally my cousin answers the phone. He said, hey, how you doing, man? I said, man, I'm great. I said, I can't find you guys. Where are you at? And he said, oh, we decided to tailgate somewhere else. And I said, uh, oh, okay, well, where, where are we tailgating? He said, it don't really matter. And I said, well, uh, I, I don't know what to do. And he says, okay, man, have a good day. And he hung the phone up and I went, 
Oh, now I get it. They don't want me tailgating with these guys anymore. And, and I kind of sit back and I look back and I grin and I realize, I said, oh, I'm not that guy anymore, am I? I'm the other guy. I'm the guy that gets up and I can't wait to go and tell somebody about Jesus. I just was still going and seeing my buddies, but I didn't realize that I was just freaking them all out. I mean, that's just all I was doing because when you ask Glenn, what are you doing? And I said, man, I, I'm leading people to Jesus. Oh. You need to come. You need Jesus. 